Right, okay. Perhaps if I could just echo what Robert said there about sort of going around, you know, places speaking, you know, and doing Bible studies, that, yeah, I mean, certainly we don't do it for our own glory. That's quite outrageous. I, of course, do it for the money. <laughs> now, <coughs> we're still on Philippians. Um, <coughs> Philippians chapter 3. Uh, for those of you who haven't been here for a while or whatever, we're, we're doing verse by verse through Philippians. And we've got on, uh, on to chapter 3, <clears throat> and uh, we'll, we'll just read from uh, verse, verse 17 uh, down to the end of the chapter. That's, that's what we'll be doing tonight. Uh, Paul says, Brethren, join in imitating me, and mark those who so live as you have an example in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. Uh, now let's let's just home in on on verse seventeen. All right, it's just, it's just brethren, join in imitating me and mark those who so live as you have an example in us. Now there's there's some quite interesting things in there. Uh, Paul says, join in imitating me. He's writing to a church. They knew who he was. They knew all about him. He'd been there, and he says, join in imitating me. Now this verb in the Greek, imitate, it's sumimites, and it comes from the verb mimimeo, all right, which means a mimic, all right, rather strange words there, uh, but it means a mimic, and it's the English word that we get mime from. So mimic or mime come from this Greek word that Paul here uses, which gets translated, imitating. And the idea um, is that he's saying, look, do it like me. That's what he's saying. Do it like me. He's saying, I am an example to you. Now, what this brings out is that leadership, certainly, because I mean, Paul was a man who was leading churches. Leadership must lead by example. Not just by speech, not just by teaching, they must lead by example. Now, what we can see from this is that a believer needs two things. Every Christian needs two things in order to grow. The first thing they need is the example of Jesus. Obviously, we need the example of Jesus, and we have that in the Bible. The Bible gives us the example of Jesus, and the Bible, if you like, is the blueprint. The Bible tells us how to live, and it gives us the example of Jesus. We need the example of Jesus in the Bible to follow. All right, But that is not enough. It is nothing like enough. Believers need something else. And the second thing they need is the example of other believers following Jesus as their example. Do you see the point? Not just a question of needing, yeah, you can turn to the Bible and there's the example of Jesus, but it's needed that there are people who can be looked to as an example of people who are living after the example of Jesus. Um, it shouldn't be the case uh, that people are given a Bible, right? You bring people to the Lord and you say, right, there's your manual, 
Go away and read it and just do what it says and you'll be all right. All right. That is not the Christian life. There's no way, you know, you don't just hand Bibles out and say, right, it tells you what to do. Get on with it. No way at all. It's needed that there are people in whose lives can be seen the living proof of Jesus. So you're reading in the Bible what the Bible wants, but there are other Christians and you can look at them as well. So you have the example of Jesus in the Bible, but you need the example of other believers who are following Jesus as their example. Practical demos are needed. Now, this is where, obviously, as believers grow in the Lord, and particularly elders and leaders, but as everyone grows in the Lord, they're going to be living more and more and more in the way that Jesus wants them to do. So, that to a certain extent, there's a sense where you say, you know, sort of, well, look, be looking at me how I do it. All right. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. Now, obviously, no one is living exactly like Jesus was. I mean, Paul himself, we saw last time, he says, I haven't obtained, I'm not already perfect, but I press on. But the point is, substantially, because Jesus was in Paul's life, and because Jesus had such freedom in his life, Paul could say to people, look at me as your example. So that's the first thing. We need the example of Jesus, and that's in the Bible, you can go home and read that yourselves, all right? But you also need the example of other believers who are following Jesus as their examples, all right? Now, this, this actual word example is quite interesting, all right? Because, I mean, here, uh, I mean, Paul's saying, look, I'm an example to you, all right, basically. Um, and this word example in the Greek is tupos, and it's the word that we get type from, a type. Of something. Now it means a strike or a blow. Tupos means to hit or to strike. Now what it means is it's an impression made by a strike. For example, if you strike someone on the skin, that impression, that will leave a bruise. And the bruise is what is left after the blow. Now, that is what this word means. It means when something external has left its mark on something. So, when Paul talks about being an example, he's talking about being someone who is marked by something that has left an impression on them. All right. And what he's talking about, to be an example, is when someone has been worked on by God over a period of time where someone's been worked on by God and the result is clearly seen in the way they live, all right? What you might call a real sorted out by God person. You can literally say someone who's really been bashed into shape by the Lord. Uh, one of the Bible's favourite pictures of maturing in the Lord is a picture of the crucible uh, or refining silver or gold or metal and uh, it basically works like this you know that you've got a lump of metal there okay and you sort of chuck it in the crucible or the furnace and you melt it down and you melt it down all right under pressure and great heat etc etc all right you get all the dross off like bubbles to the top you skim that off then you hand it over to the smithy who beats it into shape because now it's pliable. And when Paul talks about being an example in the Lord, 
he's talking about being someone who has over the years become pliable to the Lord and has literally been bashed or beaten into shape by him. A really sorted out by God person. Someone who's really been worked on. Uh, one of the words in the Bible um, used of us uh, in Ephesians, uh, Paul says, you are his workmanship. And that word in Ephesians, workmanship, the Greek word, it's not workmanship as in, uh, you know, if you kind of, uh, you know, build a motorway and you say, oh, it was my workmanship. It means a work of art, a work of art. And it's more the idea of the painter or the potter or the sculptor. And um, my goodness, sculptors do a lot of bashing. And what do they bash? The thing they're sculpting. They're taking something that is a shapeless mess of no value or, you know, aesthetic appearance whatsoever. And basically, by bashing it to pieces, they're getting something that's a work of art. That is a picture of God working in our lives. He has to literally, over the years, knock us into shape. Get us pliable into the old crucible, all the old problems, you know. The last thing you needed, well, God can make it happen. <laughs> Isn't that a far cry from the faith teachers? Like, what, you need a million pounds? Need a new car? Well, ask the Lord, he'll give it to you. All right? Uh, uh, uh. So the Lord, he makes things go wrong, and that brings out our sinful nature, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you know, we're lovely when everything's going our way. I am. <laughs> Nicest bloke in the world when I'm getting my own way. You only find out the truth about our own sinful natures when things go wrong, when things we don't want happen. Uh, you know, when that, that last person we wanted to have anything to do with gets converted and comes along to our church. It's outrageous, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, that, that's, and, of course, our sinful nature comes out, okay? Skimmed off, and, of course, you've got all the pressure and you're pliable, you're melted. And then the Lord is kind of like the divine smithy can beat you into shape. So can you see, when Paul uses the word example, the Greek word is tupos, and we get type, a type or a model. And the I, I mean, say take to type, as in a typist. What are you doing when you're typing? You're striking a piece of paper and putting an imprint on it. You're bashing a bit of paper and it leaves an imprint. That is what Paul is saying. Someone on whom God has left his mark, but it's going to be by blows. All right, by blows. Now, one thing to say about this is, is you can't miss this in someone. If someone has been dealt with in this way, you can't miss it in them if you really get to know them. This is one of the reasons that it's important in fellowship to have relationships which are significant. Anyone can do the spiritual giant act at meetings. Anyone can do that. Anyone can look good at meetings. You can get to know anyone on a superficial level. And of course, you know, when we meet people on a superficial level, it's very easy, you know, the smile goes on and the praise the Lord's come out or whatever, you know, and sort of like all the answers to prayer, you know, stuff like that. And it's very easy to create an impression that is entirely untrue of oneself. You only get to know whether people's words are meaningful or waffle by getting to know them. That's why I say that when you really get to know someone in whom this has happened, you can't miss it. And also people in whom it is happening now. And yet on the other hand, 
It's happening all the time in all of us. No one has ever arrived. Even someone who's had a real significant bashing into shape, maybe because they follow the law faithfully for so many years, they've still got more bashing to come. But the point is that when you get to know people who have been so dealt with like this by God, you can't miss them if you really get to know them. That's the point. When you see them in situations and you say, I mean, only the Lord could have enabled that person to be like that in that situation. You see what I mean? It's only when you get to know people really well. And it's people who have had the Lord really impressed or pressured, because impress, you know, if you get your, you know, sort of like your fingerprints taken, and of course I know there's no one here who has ever had their fingerprints taken, you make an impression, don't you, in the ink and then on the paper. All right, you know, bursts of guffaws from the back row there, thank you very much. Impressed, people have had the Lord impressed and pressured into them. And the point is, he's coming out. He's coming out. Uh, a few studies ago in Philippians, we saw the bit, work out your own salvation, because it is God who is at work in you to will and to do for his good purpose. So the point is, we've seen God has worked Jesus into us. And now he's working him out of us. Jesus is in us, whether we like it or not. Whether we're obeying him or not. Whether we're, uh, you know, sort of being utterly faithless or whatever. If we're born again, Jesus is in us. This work of God dealing with us is to enable Jesus to come out of us. And this is what Paul is talking about. Someone who's been bashed into shape and the life of Jesus is coming through them. And things like his love, his patience, his sheer graciousness. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Not someone who's brilliant at tongues or brilliant at casting demons out. All that is neither here nor there. I was casting demons out of people within weeks of becoming a Christian. That's meaningless, it's nothing. And yet, obviously, because I hadn't been a Christian very long, I was as undealt with as you could possibly get. And obviously, I was a new Christian. But things like his love, his patience, his graciousness, his softness, his strength. Not the strength of, now you do what I say. That's not strength, that's domination. But the strength, knowing there's a solidity there. You can lean on this person and they're not going to keel over on you because they're leaning on Jesus. Can you see? when you really know that the life of Jesus is coming out. Now, someone like that is a person that you can look to to take example from, all right? So you've got a double check, and we need loads and loads of people like that. You can read it in the Bible. Maybe you sort of like reading the Bible and think, oh yeah, the Bible says that, uh, goodness, I've got to forgive people. What? I've got to forgive people? Oh, how do you do that? Oh, I know, yeah. So-and-so, yeah, I'll find out. I'll watch him. Or the Bible says, I've got to be patient. I've got to let the patience of the Lord come out. Well, yeah, we all know what patience is, don't we? We're busy praying, Lord, I need patience now, see? <laughs> but I think, yes, I, I can look at that person. I can see how it's working in, in him. I can find out how she, over the years, has come into that patience. Can you see? And such people in that maturity are people whom one can imitate. You read what the Bible says and then you can see it working out in their lives. And so therefore, Paul says to them, imitate me. Because Paul was 
had dealt with man. He was someone who, you know, God had bashed him into shape. So therefore, Paul said, look, imitate me. Be a mimic of the way I do it. He's saying, let Jesus live through you in the way that I do. But also, this verb, imitate, sumimites, all right, um, it's got S-U-M, it's sum, on the beginning. Now, in the Greek, the actual verb here is mimetes, all right, but it's got sum on the front. Now, in Greek, sum means together, all right? It means together. Uh, as for instance, I mean, we get, the Greek U is our Y, all right? So a Greek U in, in English will translate right into a Y. And for instance, we get the word synergy. Now that comes from sun. Synergy, the idea when two things are working together in absolute harmony, made for each other, fit together perfectly, that's synergy, all right? We get that word from it. So any Greek verb with sun on the start, all right, at the front, isn't a straight do it, but it means do it together. It's never being addressed to an individual, you individually get on with it. It's being addressed to a corporate body. So the verb here is imitate me. But in the Greek, what comes over is that Paul isn't saying individually get on with it. He's saying imitate me together. Do it together as a fellowship. It's a corporate thing. Now, we've seen this again and again and again in the Bible. There is no lone wolf Christianity. You cannot go it alone. It's not possible. We need each other. God has designed us to grow with each other. We cannot merely grow on our own. Our growth must be in the context of fellowship. And by fellowship, I don't just mean going along to meetings. That's not fellowship. Fellowship, the Greek word, we've seen what it means. Koinonia, it means sharing. But remember, it doesn't just mean to share. Do you remember? This is homework now, you know, revising here. The Greek word koinonia, when you share, there's two people putting something into the pot, all right? And they're putting something in and taking something out. The Greek word koinonia means sharing, but it doesn't mean the bit you take out. It means the bit you put in. Is he? It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's why we must grow in fellowship. A lone Christian has no accountability, has to make no sacrifices, can do what on earth he likes. You see, it's got to be in the context of fellowship. It costs being in meaningful fellowship with people. But my goodness, how good that is for us. So Paul is saying, do this together as a church. Obviously, everyone's got to do it individually, but we've got to do it individually together. It's a corporate thing. We must grow as a family. And uh, what we've got here, it's important for people to understand the difference between individuality and individualism. All right. Um, because these, these get mixed up. I mean, particularly say, I mean, people have been aware of the shepherding movement. Now, what the shepherding movement was trying to do partially is that they said there's far too much individualism going on, and they were absolutely dead right. But to try to smash individualism, they actually smashed individuality. And it's important to understand the difference between them. Now, what I say is this. Individuality uh, is the true discovering and enjoying of yourself as who you are as who you are, knowing that you've been created in the image of God. And that therefore, 
It's only in relating to other people that you can be truly fulfilled because God, in whose image you are created, is himself corporate. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God is triune. Father, Son and Spirit relating together in the Trinity. So therefore, individuality is knowing that you are you and no one else. You are yourself. But you can only be yourself truly and fully when you relate in the context of giving to other people and know when to subject your will to the will of other people rather than just I want my own way and if I don't get it I'm going to be funny with you. That is the lone wolf kind of thing. So it's realising that we're made in the image of God but that God is himself triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're out doing each other and giving to each other. You know, I mean, the Father has given all authority to Jesus. What's the first thing Jesus is going to do in the end times? He's going to hand it all back to Father. The Holy Spirit, he wants to glorify Jesus. He doesn't <laughs> want to glorify himself. But Jesus is so loving and protective towards the Holy Spirit. The Father wants to glorify, you know, the Father wants to glorify Jesus. Jesus wants to glorify the Father. You see, they're out doing each other in giving. They're saying, no, not what I want, it's what you want. That's what matters, all right? I'm putting myself last. That is the way that you discover individuality. That is how you can be fulfilled as a, per as a person and individual. Individualism, however, is different. Individualism is when you put yourself first at the expense of relating to other people. It's kind of me, me, me. It's people who are obsessed with themselves. I want, so I'm going to get. And what these people are doing is that they're living in the image of a God who doesn't exist. Now think about it. What is God's nature? He's triune, he's corporate. Individualists are living as if they've been created in the image of a God who is one person. Is he? Just one person. Now, in actual fact, it is logically needful that God is more than one person. You can't actually work out from the Old Testament, although you can from the New, how many persons there are in the Godhead, but logic dictates that God cannot be a lone person. Because if the universe has been created by this God, all right, how could a God who is a singular person, and even a singular God could have no experience of corporateness, it would be logically impossible, how could such a God create a universe filled with beings, or a planet filled with beings who need to relate to each other? It wouldn't make any sense. And you see also, a God who was kind of one person, I mean, let's, let's just for one moment, let's, let's pretend that the Holy Spirit and the Son don't exist. So just one moment, Holy Spirit and Jesus into the background, and we're going to think of, of a God that is just God the Father, one person, all right. Can you imagine how lonely he was throughout eternity? And that leads you into the idea, as some Christians hold, that God created because he was lonely. He didn't create because he was lonely. There were three of him. Perfect fellowship in the Trinity. He created because he wanted to, because he wanted to bless us. He was so happy. He thought this sharing was such a wonderful thing. He thought, I'm going to create a creation so that other people can know what it's like. God didn't create us because he needed us. God doesn't need anything. He created us because he wanted to. That's all.
But the individualist, he denies others. And therefore he's living as if God, in whose image he was created, was merely a one-person God. And when you think of a one-person God before creation, before the angels, what have you got? Desperate loneliness. Desperate loneliness. And that's why the individualist is lonely. Can you see? It's not possible. I mean, no man is an island. No man is an island. That is absolutely true. So therefore, the individualist is selfish and lonely. They say, me, me, me. They don't want to relate to people. Or they'll relate to people only insofar as it suits them. They'll relate to other people if there's something in it for them. They are the individualist, all right? And, I mean, that, that is out. There's no room for that in the church because an individualist does not take others into account. They're only thinking of themselves, and that is the opposite of what fellowship is. For the individualist, whether they're the braggart, outgoing, look-at-me type, or whether they're the very, very quiet type who hardly ever say a word, they're in it for what they want out of it. They're not actually having fellowship. Because if someone is trying to have fellowship merely for what they get out of it, they're not having fellowship, because that's not what the word fellowship means. The, fellowship, the word fellowship in Greek means putting into the sharing, not taking out of it, you see. So the individualist, that's out for us, and we need God to deal with us so that we do relate and submit to others around us, okay? But also... The other imbalance, you know, because the sinful nature can always go one of two ways, can't it? And in different people, the sinful nature swings different ways depending on what you're talking about. Now, the other side of this, all right, there's the individualist who, you know, strong-willed and I'm going to do what I want. The other side of the equation is what I call the herd mentality. The herd mentality. These are the people, they just want to get lost in a crowd. They're not actually interested in having fellowship. They're not actually uh, interested in, uh, you know, sort of in individually being significantly a part of someone. What they want to do is get lost in a crowd, and if it's a Christian church, that'll be fine. Thank you very much. Get lost in a crowd and therefore avoid the responsibility of their own lives individually. In individually. These are the people, actually, who end up in the shepherding movement. Because if you think about it, the shepherding movement where you've got this authoritarian leadership and you must submit to whatever your leader tells you, it takes two types of people. It takes leaders who want to dominate and it takes Christians of the herd mentality who want to be dominated. Because if you agree to only do what your elder tells you to do and to be in utter submission to him, all right, then, of course, if anything goes wrong, it's not your fault, because you were just doing what you were told. It's got to be his fault. Can you see? And it's an escape. Escaping responsibility. Escaping all the decisions that we've got to make individually before God, and that individually we've all got to be accountable for. So what we're seeing is that true corporateness, when Paul says, be imitators of me together, what he's talking about, of people who know that they are individuals. They are individuals in their own right. They have an individual relationship with Jesus that no one can take away. They're not going to get submerged into some crowd, okay? And yet, on the other hand, they're not individualists either. It's a balance of individuals coming together and freely committing themselves to each other and submitting themselves to each other so that they can really grow in the Lord, all right? 
And as we, and I think that sometimes the biggest problem amongst Christians, yeah, people who are rebellious and self-willed and individualistic, yeah, that's a real problem. Of course it is. But much more, I think, serious and not, and, and it hasn't been taken into account. It's not addressed. Is the passiveness of Christians who've got the herd mentality. They've got the ring through their nose, you know, and they're just going to all the latest meetings and reading all the latest books. They don't have to think for themselves. They're not responsible for their own lives. They're just being dragged along by the crowd and, you know, they're doing whatever. You know, if, someone, if someone's well-known, if someone's a spiritual giant, well, whatever they say, it's got to be right, I'll just do that. And then if it goes wrong, it's not my fault, it's theirs, isn't it? And that's the kind of mentality that they've got. And this is a dreadful problem in the church. And... In verse 17, when Paul goes on to say, mark those who are examples, having, having said to them, look, you know, you need people who are examples. And because the epistle was written in Greek, they didn't need an explanation of what the word means. They knew it all, so it was there in the Greek. But when Paul goes on and says, look, mark those who are examples, all right, he's actually addressing the problem of the tendency for many Christians to be passive. Now, how do I how do I work that out? Right, again, let's let's get into the Greek. He says, mark those who are examples. Now this word here translated mark, the Greek word is scopio, alright? And it means to look at or to behold or to watch or to contemplate. Now, you'll remember um, that when we did uh, the Fellowship Life series, uh, we saw that one of the words for an elder is a bishop or an overseer. And the Greek word for that is episkopos, which means overseer. Because this verb, skopio, and that's the verb that Paul uses, he says mark, is used of an elder because an elder watches over the church. So, what Paul is saying he says, mark those who are examples. He says, search them out. <coughs> Contemplate them. He's telling them that they need leaders who are going to be good examples to them. And he's now saying, search them out and contemplate on it. Now, there are two things here, all right. Firstly, obviously, uh, in order for someone to be an example, you've got to, to watch in the sense of observing them, haven't you? Um, you know, because they can't be an example in the first place to you unless you're watching them sufficiently to actually see what they're doing. So you can copy them, all right? So in this first sense, it's just look and learn. But the real thing that Paul is getting here is that what he's saying to them, he's reminding them that they are individually responsible before the Lord to find out and to decide who are going to be their examples that they're going to look to. Now, can you see that? Um, what we've got here is the responsibility and also the divine right of each Christian to choose the leadership that they consider to be a wise and a safe choice. So when Paul says, mark those who are an example, he's saying, you make sure that you find out who the leadership are that you need to be following. Can you see? And he's putting the onus on 
them. All right. Um, response to leaders in the church must never be a passive thing. It must be active. No one must ever be doing anything just because they've been told to do it by a leader. Uh, again, in the Fellowship Life series, you remember... Um, I've just got a chance to correct something here. Uh, there's a rumour that goes around that I get most of my inspiration from Star Trek. Well, I don't. I get it from Star Trek and Blake Seven. And I don't know if you remember Blake Seven. Fabulous series, all right. But you know, sort of like these, you know, these goodies in this spaceship fighting off the, the Federation. You see, and uh, two of the guys on the crew. One was called Avon, and one was called Villa. Now, Avon, he was a criminal, and he was a real smoothie, real strong guy, good fighter, really brainy and stuff like that. And uh, but he kind of reformed to fight fight the Federation. You see, so he was a goodie now and uh, the other guy was Villa and Villa was a sneak thief he was like a pickpocket and that and he was he was very cowardly uh, he was a nice enough bloke he was a nice enough bloke but he was very very cowardly um, and, and all through the series in fact all three of them <laughs> all through the three series of Blake 7 which who knows one day they might be repeated uh, you had this tension between Avon and Villa and Avon resented Villa alright because he considered Villa to be a coward and Villa resented Avon because he considered him to be a kind of a snob, all right? Uh, you know, and yet, of course, what ran through it is that, you know, when occasion called, they each risked their lives to save the other. But there was one particular occasion uh, when Blake, who was the captain, the leader, all right, he'd made a suggestion, you see, and Avon wanted to do something else. And, uh, and they had a big, you know, argument about it, Avon and Blake. But because Blake was the captain, all right, Avon backed down and did what Blake said, even though he didn't agree with him. Now, Villa saw his chance to have a go at this big, tough Avon, you know, sort of like have a, a dig at him, you know, that he gave in to Blake and stuff like that. And, um, <clears throat> and what Avon said to Villa was really good. He said, you're being led, but I've decided to follow. Now, can you see the difference there? Avon said, Villa, you're being led, but I've decided to follow. So Villa was trying to have a dig at Avon, saying, oh, you've given in, have you? And Avon was pointing out, no, I haven't given in. I have decided to submit for the greater good. Can you see? And there's a difference between deciding to follow and being led. If you're being led, it's passive and it's wrong. You've got to decide to follow. And in the Church Life series we saw that the whole question about submission to elders uh, is based on a personal knowledge and trust of those elders. Those people having proved to you that they are your friends. The fact that you put yourself under their authority, you're doing that not because you've got to, but because you say these people are clearly, you know, my friend, they are clearly people who can be trusted. My goodness, yes, I vote to get myself under that leadership. Not just the passive, oh, well, they're the leaders, I better do as they say. Can you see? It's got to be an active thing and not passive. So what Paul is saying to them, he says, look, mark those who are examples. He says, search them out, find them out. And he's saying that because he says, look, if you're going to put yourself under the care and protection of elders, 
then my goodness, make sure that you're putting yourself under people who are safe to actually be under. And the onus is on the individual Christian to do that. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, look, be very careful who you allow to have influence over you, alright? And one thing I would say, um, and it's a problem often that comes up, if, if there are people who have an influence over you spiritually and you believe that that influence is wrong or is unhelpful um, and you're finding that it's hindering you, uh, then let me tell you, you have the divine right to withdraw from being under their influence. You see? No Christian has to remain under any influence that is bad for them when it comes to leaders of churches. Absolutely not. Or they might not be leaders of churches, they might just be people who you've known, but somehow they think that they've got some special kind of input into your life because God's given it to them. You don't have to accept that. You don't have to take that. We only need to receive of other people whom we know can be trusted and who have proved themselves to us. Otherwise, anyone could come along and say, well, God's telling you to do this, you to do that, I've got a word for you, or you over there, I've got this for you. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? And then people come in, say what they like. Say what they like. And because normally those people are gone before too long, they're not around, they're not carrying the can for the outcome of the things that they advise people to do. Can you see? Whereas, I mean, at least here, if someone comes to Robert, if someone comes to me, and we advise you, and you say, yeah, I think that advice is right. If, if the advice turns out to be a disaster, we'll do everything we can to, to help you put that right. Can you see what I mean? You know, but people who just go around giving input all over the place, that's cheap. It doesn't cost them anything. Can you see? So therefore, if there's anyone who has a, a, an spiritual influence over you that you think is not a good or a healthy one, might be leaders of pride churches used to go to who, who won't let go of you. Don't have it. You don't have to put up with that. You have the divine right to choose who has input into your own lives, all right? And let me say as well that arguments about past loyalty are irrelevant to this. Absolutely irrelevant to it. Um, I mean, the argument that says, well, you ought to do what I say because I look how far back we go. I mean, that's nonsense. That's a kind of a blackmail. Can you see? I mean, the fact that you might have been in the same church as someone ten years ago and this person is still giving you words from the Lord all over the place, if they chuck the old loyalty argument at you, don't, don't settle for that. that that's, that's kind of spiritual blackmail. Each Christian has the divine right to decide who does and who does not have influence over them spiritually. And each one of us will be accountable whether we make a right or a wrong choice. You see, that, that's the point. There's no escaping from responsibility. God holds each one of us responsible for every aspect of our lives. And, uh, I mean, one thing that I find is that most Christians who I know are in churches other than this one, and this is just a fact, I'm not making this up, the vast majority of Christians who I have known, uh, they tell me that they think that their leadership is useless in one way or the other. You know, it can be anything from, well, I mean, basically they're just a bunch of wallies right up to their little Hitlers. But... Can you see, so many Christians, they're in churches and they're saying, oh, the leadership here basically, it stinks. Can't trust them, 
uh, or they're weak, you know, they're wallies, they, you know, there's problems in the church and they're too scared to confront them in case people leave. Okay. Now, the point is this. If that is the case, why do they stay? Why are they staying? Can you see, it, it is quite wrong. If, if you've put yourself under a leadership that you don't respect, then it's not fair on those leaders. Can you see, I mean, how have they got a chance of reforming if everyone in their church has no respect for them? Can you see? So, I mean, in regards to that, when you get Christians in churches who do not respect and look up to their leadership because they think they're wallies or whatever, that is a wrong situation to be in. You can't remain under leadership who you do not consider to be a full and proper biblical example in the way that Paul is talking about here. And so therefore, in verse 17, what Paul is saying boils, boils down to this. He says, look, you find leadership that you respect. Don't just sit passively under anybody's authority. The leadership that you are under must be chosen by you. And that must be a conscious and an active decision based on your own assessment of those leaders. Can you see? Now that is an awesome responsibility. But believe me, that is the safeguard from ever ending up in some kind of stupid authoritarian shepherding church, isn't it? Because you have got the divine right to choose who you submit to. And that is what Paul is saying here. Okay, right, let's, let's just move on now to, to verse 18 and 19. Let's, uh, let's just read it. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now actually we're still going to be in those verses on this subject of uh, deciding with whom you have to do, actually. Because um, basically what Paul is saying here He's reminding them um, that, that there are many, 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 many people who are not worth having as an exa examples in any way at all. Um, you know, he, he, he warns them about people who, who have their minds set on earthly things. And he warns them. He's saying, don't let these people have any influence over you. You may have to work with them. Yeah, of course can't avoid them and also because in verse 19 because he says their end is destruction we know that here he's talking about unbelievers and it's certainly very true that bad company spoils good morals it's absolutely true uh, when people get converted they've got to make a real choice I mean in many instances when you get converted you can carry on with your friends as normal yeah be a light that shines them that's brilliant but some people there is no way when they get converted that they can carry on in the same social circles. I mean, there are some lifestyles that if you, if you get converted, if you stay in with that pack that you were running with, there's no way you're going to set an example. You're going to be dragged back down again. You know, so Paul is saying here, I mean, he's spoken about leadership, but now he's saying, look, in general, be careful who you allow to have 
influence over you. Be careful who you mix with. Uh, be careful who you open your life to in any way at all. And he says here, look, their God is their belly. Now, he's not actually talking about gluttony here. He's not talking about people who need to go on a diet. It's a sort of idiom uh, that, that um, was used at the time. And uh, simply meaning that these are people who they only care about their earthly desires and appetites. That, that, that was the idiomatic use of the belly um, at that particular juncture in history, in that culture. And so what he's talking about is that there's all those people out there, they care about one thing only. They care about what they want, their own earthly desires and appetites. Uh, now then, I mean, not that earthly desires and appetites are wrong in themselves, but these people only care about those things. Can you see? Never a thought for God, never a thought for other people, never a thought for right or wrong, never a thought for the consequences of their action. And Paul says, look, if you let people like that have too much influence over you, you are going to be in trouble. And the actual word here for belly is koilia, and it means a hollow. And I mean, that lifestyle, what I want, just the materialism, pleasure, Basically pleasure, all the time, wanting pleasure, entertainment, you know, so I feel like this, so boom, off I go again. Now I feel like that, and I want, I want, I want. I mean, it's sheer emptiness. It is absolute emptiness. And if we allow people like that to have too much influence over us, then, my goodness, we're going to find that, that we can well be in trouble. So Paul is saying, look, every Christian has a duty not just to choose the leadership that they entrust themselves to, but they've got to have a good hard look at the type of people they're keeping company with. Now, if you can keep company with your former friends and live the Christian life and be an example, then stay in with them. You'll be the means, who knows, of them coming to know the Lord. But if there is company that you're keeping that is dragging you down and you know that they're going to drag you down, I mean, it might be a nice thought, oh, well, I, I can raise them up, can't I? Yeah, but the point is, down the pub you go with them. Oh, I'm only, no, I can be there, and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. You know, I'm going to get on their wavelength. Well, I tell you, if you tell people about Jesus with three pints in you, they're going to laugh in your face. Because I'll tell you, non-Christians see through Christians easier than other Christians do. They really do. And when you get this idea amongst Christians, oh, well, let's, let's be nice and worldly. Let's show them we can have a good time. Well, I'll tell you, I can have a good time, but I don't have to resort to the stuff that I'm talking about. Any attempt to compromise and to go out there and be one of the lads with the lads so that the lads might get converted and, and be doing things that we know are things that are wrong, that, is, that will come to absolutely no good whatsoever. So Paul is saying, look, be careful who you allow to have influence over your lives. And what he does there is that he talks about uh, people who live as enemies of the cross and he talks about their God being the belly. Now, there he was talking about non-Christians. But now, I want to show you something that is absolutely fascinating. Here, Paul is saying, be very careful who you allow to influence you, alright? Because unbelievers who only think of their own desires can have a very bad effect. 
He uses scopio, that's the verb he uses, to watch. He says, contemplate all these things, pick these people very, very carefully, and then he uses the picture of the belly, all right? Now then, there's only one other place in the Bible where he uses both those things together, the idiom of the belly and the verb scopio. Mark those. And it's Romans chapter 16, and we're going to look at it because this is fascinating. <laughs> Romans chapter 16 in Philippians he was talking about unbelievers who have a bad effect on you now what's so fascinating and so important about this chapter in Romans is that here Paul is talking about Christians who can have a bad effect on you let's actually read it he says I appeal to you, brethren. Now here, he's talking about people in the church. Uh, this is Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Here, he's talking about people in the church. And believe me, at the time of the early church, you didn't remain in the church if you weren't a Christian for very long. We know that because the early church was so powerful that unbelievers wouldn't dare go near it. They were frightened of it. He's talking here about Christians. Right. He says, I appeal to you, brethren, take note, and there you have it, that's Scopio, Mark. Watch it. Take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. He's talking about Christians who cause trouble because they're not willing to live by what the Bible says. Now, when you've got some of them in a church, when the rest of the people are living in obedience to the Bible, and you get a group of Christians who aren't living in obedience to the Bible, my goodness, they kick up trouble. All right? And Paul says, look, take note of them. And he says, avoid them. Now, look, he says, for such persons, and he's talking about non he's talking about Christians now, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites and that word translated appetites here in my bible that's belly he uses exactly the same idiom and he says look there are christians who are only concerned with their own earthly desires and appetites just like non-christians and oh boy haven't we experienced this to be true it is a heck of an assumption to think that everyone who's born again and claims to be following the Lord is. I mean, there is specific teaching in the New Testament, quite precisely, that when you have people who are claiming to be following Jesus, oh, I name the name of Jesus, oh, I'm following Jesus, oh, praise the Lord, they say, and yet they're being immoral, they might be stealing things, I mean, their minds are full of filth all the time. My goodness, and they're not willing to repent of these things. Paul says, oh, you don't have anything to do with people like that because yeah they might be Christians but their lives hypocrisy they say they're following Jesus but they're not really and, and these are the people that Paul is talking about Christians they might be dressed up in all the you know, they use all the right words they sing all the right songs and they might be there with all the speaking with tongues in the meetings and that but by their lives and the trouble they cause and all the backbiting all the hatred that they generate in the church turning people against each other they prove that all they're really interested I mean they're virtually no different to how they would have been if they hadn't got converted 
Yeah, they've got Christian jargon, but that's about as far as the change has gone in their lives. All right. And Paul says, look, by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. You know, I mean, you know, these, they, they throw it away in the background. They, they, they tell each person just what they think that person wants to hear to get them on their side, and then they drop the poison. Now, we've had a lot of this here, haven't we? And Paul's saying, right, take note, mark those, their God is their belly, and avoid them. All right. So then, we see now a third responsibility that Paul gives us. We must choose safe leadership. That is the first responsibility we've seen in all this. The second is that we must judge very carefully uh, whether the non-Christian company we're keeping is a-okay. If it is, keep it. But I mean, for most people, it's fine. But there are people who are Christians that for them to carry on with their non-Christian friends they had before they were converted is death for them. Their non-Christian friends will drag them back into the world. So responsibility number two is that Paul's saying, look, be very careful about the unbelievers that you keep company with. And then thirdly, he says, but also you've got to actually decide which Christians you are willing to have fellowship with. Now, that's, that's a tremendous thing for Paul to say. But in Romans, that is exactly what he does say. He says there are Christians to be avoided equally as there are Christians to be in fellowship with. And can you see, the whole essence of this is that Paul is saying each individual person must take responsibility for the influences that they're allowing into their lives. The influence of leadership, the influence of non-Christian friends, and the influence of other Christians. All right. Now, I want to just say again in regards to non-Christians, I am not saying that Christians, as, as soon as they get converted, drop all their non-Christian friends. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about any Christian whose contact with non-Christians is dragging them down. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying we mustn't have anything to do with non-Christians. I'm not saying that at all. But if you're in a situation where non-Christians are dragging you down morally, then they are people that you must remove yourself from. Bad company corrupts good morals. Absolutely right. So we've got a responsibility in all these areas. But in the Romans thing, what we've seen is we've got to be responsible to be just a little bit more choosy as to which believers we have fellowship with and which believers we don't. See? Because there are believers who are as worldly and selfish and carnal as unbelievers. And when push comes to shove and chapter comes to verse, they are living in disobedience to God and they will cause trouble no matter what effect that trouble has on innocent people, they will cause trouble rather than get right with God. Now, Paul says, avoid them. All right. We've got to be a little bit more choosy about who we do and who we don't have fellowship with. And this isn't exclusivism. Uh, if, if I was sitting here saying, look, if there are Christians who go to the Anglican church, don't have anything to do with them, I'm not saying that. That would be exclusivism. If I was saying, any, any Christian who doesn't come here, don't have anything to do with them, that would be exclusivism. 
I'm saying don't have anything to do with Christians who by their lives are proving that they are not following Jesus. Is he? That's what I'm saying. I'm not talking exclusivism, but there are Christians who need to be excluded from our lives until such time as they are living in submission to the Word of God and have repented of whatever it was that they did that created all the trouble. So this is what Paul is saying. When there are Christians who are selfish and worldly and they'll cause trouble rather than get themselves sorted out with God, he says, look, they're best avoided. Their influence on you will be bad. It won't be good, it will be bad. All right? And I know there are people here who have experienced this. You know, sort of maybe they spent a bit of time, you know, sort of like, say, with some such Christian. And after half hour chatting with them, they're coming, you know, they're coming around thinking, oh, I wonder if that was true. And they're troubled. And I think, oh, goodness. And so then they, they quite rightly go and, oh, look, I, I heard this. Is it true? And then they find out it's a lie. And of course it's a lie, because these people tell lies. But how unnecessary to get yourself into the situation where you're troubled like that in the first place. Is he? So Paul says, look, be a bit more choosy who you have fellowship. So then, each individual must take responsibility for choosing safe leadership. Must take responsibility for what non-Christian friends it is safe to keep. And must take responsibility for what believers they are willing to have fellowship with. And uh, I don't know if you can see that here, far from the idea of uh, sort of like Christians in churches, you know, sort of like with rings through their noses and, you know, well, whatever, you know, kind of the herd mentality. This is Paul addressing individuals about their individual rights and responsibilities before the Lord. No authoritarian shepherding here. None of this, well, it doesn't matter what you think, because, of course, you've got the elders, what they think, that's all that matters. And this is what some churches teach. None of that at all. Paul is telling them, far from handing their responsibility over to other people, Paul is saying, take every responsibility that God has given you. Be your own person. Be your own man. Because you individually are accountable to God for your own life and no one else's. And you'll never be able to blame anyone else at all. God holds each one of us accountable individually for every decision we make. And there is absolutely no passing the buck. Okay. Right, let's just move on into verse 20. And, um, and he says, but... Uh, now remember, he's just talked about people who all they're concerned about is what they want. Earthly desires, blah, blah, blah. He says, but... And now he says, but in contrast, he says, our commonwealth is in heaven. Our commonwealth is in heaven. Now, this word commonwealth, in the Greek, it's polytuma. And uh, what it does, it's a word that denotes the condition or life of a citizen of a nation. That's what it means. Uh, you can quite rightly translate it citizenship. All right? And, and it's actually the word we get politics from, although I'm not actually going to be saying anything about politics tonight. Okay. Uh, so what Paul is saying, basically, he says, look, yeah, sure, there are people that all, all they want are what this world has to offer. That's all they're interested in. They're not interested in anything else. But what he's saying is, but our commonwealth, our citizenship, is in heaven. He says, we're not actually part of this country. I mean, we're, 
We're passing through. I mean, yes, I am technically English, yeah, but I'm only a visitor. I'm passing through. Home is somewhere else for me. Can you see? Uh, just go to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, where, where Paul says a little bit more about this, this idea. Because he's like, what we're going to see is that if our citizenship is in heaven, then we are under heaven's authority. He's mentioned people who do what they like, when they like, pleasures and appetites and desires. He's saying, but we, we are under the authority of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. And in 2 Corinthians 5, and uh, we'll start from, um, we'll start from, no, it's not 2 Corinthians 5, have I got the wrong? Um, oh, goodness. Well, it's the, I've, I've put the wrong verse down, but where, where he talks about us being ambassadors for Christ. Forget the verse, I've put the wrong one down. But Paul talks in Corinthians uh, about being ambassadors of Christ. Now, what does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes from his native homeland. Oh, it's verse 20, was it? Oh, it was 2 Corinthians 5. Oh, yes, of course, so it is. I did have the right verse down. Um, yeah, in verse, he says, So we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Now, an ambassador is someone who goes from his native homeland into a foreign land in order to represent his native homeland. An ambassador is in a foreign land promoting the best interests of his native land. All right? And here, God says, look, uh, Paul says, God is making his appeal through us. Now, if we're ambassadors in this world, who is, who is the appeal being made to? Unbelievers. God is actually calling unbelievers to himself through us. Now, what a responsibility in regards to the type of life that we lead. I mean, are our lives likely to be, uh, you know, attracting people to Jesus? You too can be like me. How attractive is that going to be to some people? My goodness. And if they see that basically we're no different to they are, then they're going to say, it's silly, isn't it? But here, Paul is, is talking about our ambassadorship, the fact that our real home is in heaven. All right. Now, this raises the question. How are we individually representing our true homeland in heaven and its own government, i.e. the Lord? Because we're under his authority. We're under the authority of our own country as well, but ultimately we're under his authority. So the point is, how are we representing heaven, which is where we live really, that's, that's where we're heading. What kind of advert are we? Um, like the British football hooligans abroad? I mean, what kind of picture are the football hooligans from Britain painting in foreign countries? I mean, what must... I mean, my parents travel widely, and when they're in Europe particularly, they're ashamed to be British. They're ashamed. They have to very quickly, when they end up talking or meeting anyone from that country, my parents have to very, very quickly demonstrate that they are nice, civilised, ordinary people. Because there are people abroad who think Britain is a dustbin. And they think it's a dustbin because they look at our lager louts who go and visit their countries and do nothing but get drunk and smash them up. 
And I think, well, that, that's Britain for you. And, you know, and they're all wearing their Union Jack trousers. Now, what kind of advert are we? What kind of advert are they for Britain? What kind of advert are we for heaven? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Our commonwealth is in heaven. But Christians, who just, whatever they want, you know, they're basically no different to how they would have been. Oh, they might have given up blatant immorality. They might not get drunk anymore. But basically, they're no different. You know, they know how to hold resentment. They know how to bitch back. They know they're no different at work and that. Everyone knows, oh, no, don't, don't, don't get the wrong side of him. You'll be in trouble. Well, if we're Christians... No one should ever say, because if people, people shouldn't be able to get on the wrong side of us. Because we forgive them. It's not possible to get on the wrong side of a Christian who's following the Lord. Because all he wants to do is love you. Don't want vengeance. He don't want to have it in for you. Can you see? What kind of advert are we for our home in heaven? And uh, this word, polituo, okay, which was uh, translated commonwealth, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 27, it's translated manner of life. When Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now we must address that question to ourselves. Is our manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are we really living under the authority of the kingdom of God? Or are we still really living under the authority of the kingdom of the world? Which is basically, you know, if it takes your fancy, do it. It doesn't matter, you know, kind of, you know, lackadaisy, it doesn't matter what the Bible says and worldliness and greed and envy and stuff like that. That is all what Jesus has called us to leave behind. So we've got to make sure that we're living by the rules of heaven, that we're actually under the authority of the kingdom of God. Living in this world, absolutely yes, but under the authority of the kingdom of God. And uh, I've said it before, we can need to make sure that we're going to heaven on a little bit of heaven. Uh, you know like the magic carpets, like the Thief of Baghdad and the Arabian Nights and stuff like that, that you get on your magic carpet and it flies you somewhere? Well, picture, I mean, Jesus, I mean, when he came to live in us, when we were born again, think of him like a little magic carpet. All right, but that little magic carpet is from heaven. And we've got a little bit of heaven in us, because Jesus is in us. And we need to be going to heaven on a little bit of heaven. Do you see the point? Living under his authority. And I was interested years ago to discover uh, that there's actually a little spider, okay? And this spider lives entirely underwater. It even builds its webs underwater. But of course, spiders breathe air. Well, they don't breathe air as such, they don't respire, but they've got little spiracles. So it's air that keeps these spiders going, they don't have gills. But these spiders, they live underwater, and you know what they do? In order to survive, I mean they live under the water, but they've got, you know, two of their little claws or whatever they have. If they go up to the surface of the water, they can actually bring down a, a big air bubble down to the bottom of the pond, and they live in the air bubble. Uh, they're what? Legs, not claws. Legs, not claws. Legs, that's right, you see. And these little spiders, they live underwater, but they need the air. So they bring an air bubble down, and they live in it, and when the air bubble starts running out, they go up and they get another one. Now, can you see? That is a picture. Our commonwealth is in heaven. Yeah, we're living in this world, but we're not meant to be breathing it in. We're meant to be breathing in the life of heaven. We can live surrounded by a little bubble, 
I'm not talking about escapism. I'm not talking about Christians who they've managed to isolate themselves from the rigours of the world. I'm not talking about that sort of bubble. But I'm talking about morally the type of people we are. We're living in, in, in a world that, that, that is stinking with sin. And yet we can be breathing the fresh air of heaven and therefore be spreading that fresh air into the darkness of the world rather than living under the power of that darkness itself. So Paul says, look, our commonwealth is in heaven. We're under the authority of Jesus. We're under the authority of the kingdom of God. All right, and we've got to make sure that that is what is influencing our lives. And then just to finish off this chapter, he says, 20 and 21, he says, but our commonwealth is in heaven, and he says, from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him to subject all things to himself. Now, do you remember when we did the salvation series, we saw that salvation, which simply means to be rescued, and uh, if, I mean, Jesus is saviour, uh, rescuer is a perfectly good translation. So salvation is to be rescued, and Jesus as our saviour means that he's our rescuer. And we saw that salvation has three aspects, past, present and future. And we see that the moment you're born again, you're forgiven, you're justified. And that is past salvation. You are saved once and for all, you are rescued from the lake of fire. You will never ever go to lake of fire. The moment you're born again, that is settled, that's gone for all time. <coughs> All right? And then we saw that there was present salvation. Now, present salvation, that's not being rescued from the penalty of sin. That's already been done. We're free of that. But it's being rescued from the power of sin. Because having saved us from sin's penalty, God now wants to save us from his power. He wants to change our lives so that sin has less and less control over us and he has more and more. And then we've seen that in the future, this hasn't happened yet, we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. And that's going to be because one day when we die, we're going to lose this body, alright, when we die, and, and the sinful nature lives in our body, and we're going to get a new body. We're going to get a glorified body. It'll be based on the body we've got. I'll still look like me, you'll still look like you. Maybe some of you might be a little bit more padded out. Some of us might be a little bit thinner. It's going to be the perfect us. But the point is, we're going to get a body just like Jesus is, glorified, and then we will be beyond sin. And that is what Paul's talking about here. And that's why he says we await a saviour from heaven. He's not talking about that we've got to wait till then before we find out if we're saved from the lake of fire. He's not talking about being saved from the penalty of sin. But he says, yet in the future, Jesus is going to save us from the very presence of sin. And he talks about the fact that Jesus is going to change our body and we're going to get a glorified body just like his. Let's, let's just look at this very quickly. Go to, go to 1 Thessalonians. This is all on the Salvation series in great detail, but we're, we're hitting up against it here, so we'll do it here. 1, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, and in verse 13, he says, We would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep. Now, sleep people who have followed Jesus who have died, all right? Uh, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not proceed until those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Now very quickly what he's saying there, there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to come back, alright? Now, he's not initially going to land on the earth, he's going to come and he'll just be in the sky. And he's going to be, bring with him everyone throughout history who's died having followed him. And they're all going to come back with him. But they haven't got a body. Now, what's going to happen on that day is they're all going to get their glorified bodies, bang, just like that. And they're going to get glorified bodies just like his. Now, when that happens, every believer who's alive on the face of the earth, they're going to be caught up in the sky with Jesus, and then they are going to get their glorified bodies and then all back to heaven. All back to heaven. Now, that's what Paul's talking about. And if you just go, go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive. And in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And uh, just in verse 51, he says, Lo, I tell you a mystery. Well, not all sleep. He says, we're not all going to die. He says, but we shall all be changed. And that word changed there is metamorphoon. It's the word we get metamorphosis from. When, you know, a, a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. That's, that's what this word means. He says, we'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That word twinkling, that's the Greek word we get atom from. Fraction, really tiny amount of time, all right? He says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable nature, i.e. this body that can die, must put on imperishable, an immortal body that can't die. And then in, in, at the end of verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because the day is going to come when we're going to have a body just like Jesus is. Just go to 1 John, one last verse on this. 1 John, chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, we're God's children now, which we certainly are. But he says, It does not yet appear what we shall be. He says, We're God's children now, but we don't know what we're going to be like, really. He says, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that in that day when Jesus comes again at the rapture, we're going to see him in all his glory. And you know what's going to happen? The mere act of seeing him in all his glory is going to give us bodies which are as glorious as his. We are going to be like him because we shall see him as he is. And that is why Paul looks ahead and he says, look, we await a saviour from heaven who's going to change our lowly body. This, this body of weakness, of flesh and blood that can die. If you hit me, I'll bleed. I will, honest, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, Paul says, no, one day we're going to have immortal bodies, indestructible bodies, 
bodies just like the one that Jesus had when he was raised from the dead. Okay, now we'll continue in Philippians next time.